0: what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast and today my guest is nicola rahini all right so she wrote a book called the social instinct and i've been kind of upset because it's been out in the uk for a while and it only recently came out in the United States, but she was kind enough to send me an early copy. And the book is now officially available in the United States. So make sure that you get a copy because basically uh, Nicola, she is a researcher. She is a professor and she has studied how we have evolved to cooperate. And there's so many great topics within the book. And I've, I've said this on Twitter. And by the way, follow me over on Twitter at The Rewired Soul if you're not yet, but I've said this like, you, you kind of hear like that thing, like, oh, everything that's been written has been written and, you know, all these other things. Like I am, 2021 is blowing my mind when it comes to good books. Like uh, this book, The Social Instinct, I love reading books on, you know, like how we evolved uh, uh, to cooperate and, you know, just kind of like moral psychology and all sorts of like evolutionary psychology. And in this book, The Social Instinct, there's so many unique angles. And I learned so much, not only from the book, but i learned a ton in this conversation you're going to hear me just kind of nerding out because i've i've been sitting on these questions for a long time such as like why why do we study animals instead of humans what can we learn from animal tests that we can't learn from just getting humans to do it and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm a fan of asking what might be perceived as dumb questions, because like I like I tell my son, chances are if you have a dumb question, somebody else has that dumb question. So you might as well bite the bullet and be the one to ask that question because you're helping other people out. So if any of you are wondering about that or have been, we discuss it in this episode. And yeah, I learned so so much but we also dive into some other topics that i've been really interested in like for example does true altruism exist right do we ever do anything kind for anybody else without expecting something in return even if it's just a good feeling for anybody else out there in recovery you know that that's like a big thing like we're, we talk about like hey do stuff selflessly, just help others. So, uh, but but it helps keep us sober. So that's why I want to ask somebody like Nicola what her thoughts are on it. And yeah, I got an excellent answer from her. But there's so many other topics about cooperation, uh, the problem with free riders, and yeah, the book is amazing. The conversation was so much fun and I feel like a smarter person and I hope you do too. So yeah, make sure you head down to the description below, make sure you are following uh, her over on uh, Twitter and grab a copy of the book. Both of those will be linked down in the description below. And as I mentioned, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter. That's linked down uh, below as well. It's at The Rewired Soul. And if you're new here, make sure you're following the podcast uh, or subscribe to it. And if you really want to be awesome, if you really want to help out, if you like this podcast, if you're coming back all the time, you're like, man, this is good. Make sure you're sharing it out on social media. It really helps get the word out there. It helps with the algorithms and all that. All right, but anyways, anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with Nicola Rahini about her brand new book, The Social Instinct. Hello, Nicola. How are you doing today?
1: I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you?
0: I am fantastic and super excited that we get to talk about the social instinct. I was, I was upset because it didn't come to the States for so long, but you hooked me up with a copy and I loved it so much. So for those who are in my audience that might not know you yet, can you give a little bit of your background and what inspired you to sit down and write this book?
1: Sure. So, um, well, my name's Nicola Rehani, and I'm a professor of evolution and behavior at University College London. So I'm in a psychology department now, um, but I'm not really a psychologist. Mm. Um, My training is in evolutionary biology and field biology, really. So I did my PhD um, in the Kalahari Desert. Chasing Birds Around the Desert and I (laughs) guess we might talk about that at some point in this show Uh, and I was working on social behavior in non-humans for quite a long time and it's only really um, in the last sort of 10 years or so that I've been working more and more on social behavior in humans and hopefully Mm. that gives a bit of a perspective as to where I come from in the book so the book is very much about comparing what we see in our own species with what we also can find elsewhere in nature and the kinds of social behavior we see you know in species that are quite distantly related to us actually yeah Um, yeah
0: so so here's here's why i'm curious so I'm, I'm into this topic cause I love like evolutionary psychology and I'm fascinated with human behavior and all that. And yeah, the book starts with a lot of biology and that stuff. It's like, I try to like really focus and and get into it. So can you kind of a- explain like how that, how that crossover happens? Because you talk a lot about like a lot about, you know, uh, I, I don't even want to use the wrong words cause I'm terrible with biological words. But like, you know, I like, uh, you know, the things within our body interact and stuff and then that that, turns into some sort of behavior. Could you please explain it so I don't sound so dumb?
1: (laughs) Sure. sure. So, I start with um, the books. The book is organized in four sections essentially and it's exploring cooperation at four different levels of organization. So it starts, as you say, um, I mean, I would say the whole book is biology in some respects, mm. but the beginning of it probably feels is the hardest core part of the book in some ways for, for some people. And I think that's a reasonable observation. So the first part of the book tackles how we can view our multicellular existence as mm. being a form of cooperation. And so okay. it really, it takes, you know, this. The, the individual that you see when you look in the mirror and it holds the, it it kind of, um, it, it, it challenges that view of ourselves as this coherent entity and, and actually asks the reader to zoom in and to realize that actually we are collectives, we're, we're collectives that are made up of genes that are cooperating inside genomes and mm-hmm. cells that are working together. To generate and to create this new level of organisation that we call the individual,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and then from that point, the book zooms out. So I talk about cooperation that creates individuals, and I then move out, move on to talk about cooperation among individuals. So the most obvious kind of cooperation we see on the planet is in family groups. So I talk about the evolution of parental care in the Mm -hmm. family. And then I zoom out again and talk about cooperation that happens among strangers and among non-relatives. And then finally, the very last part of the book is about how we can understand the large-scale cooperation that's so characteristic of our own societies. And so that's kind of to give anyone who's listening a sense of how the book is structured, it very much it starts very very small it starts inside our bodies and it zooms out and out and out to this eventually try to understand large-scale societal cooperation Uh, and at all in all those parts of the book i'm very interested in what a biologist would call a comparative approach which is Mm. how can we learn more about ourselves through comparison with other species
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah no and and i love that uh, aspect of it. And that's what I always always try to do because, you know, part of why I read so many books and, you know, do the podcast and stuff like that, I, I, I've noticed, you know, that there's a huge gap between like science and people understanding it. And I think, you know, the last year with COVID has just been the perfect example, well, perfect and terrible example of just people not understanding, you know, how these things work. So it's like, how do we communicate this this stuff, right? So I'd like to see where the crossover is, or can we use an example from over here? But I guess one question I I, I had for you, um because it started like clicking for me, and I was like, okay, now I'm in familiar territory. Once we zoomed out a little bit, so is this is this purely comparative, like the the biology and like the, the zoomed in, like on a like cellular level, or is there a relation for how like our everything within our system kind of cooperates with each other that then translates to human behavior? Does that make sense? Like is it more of like a, a comparison? Or do you think we evolve where it's like, hey, our cells are doing this? So maybe people should do this with one another. Does that make sense?
1: Um, yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, I don't think necessarily we can learn any moral lessons from the ways that our, uh, that from the ways that cooperation happens inside mm. our bodies say, but I think that one of the themes that does come through when you take this really broad perspective of thinking about cooperation at all levels of life from cooperation occurring mm-hmm. inside bodies to cooperation occurring in complex societies. Um, and one thing that, you, one thing that emerges is that there are some quite consistent patterns in the way that cooperation works, whether Mm. it's cooperation working inside our own bodies or whether it's, you know, people living in a foraging society and figuring out how to organize, for example, food sharing and things like that. There are there do seem to be some common principles. And Mm. just to take one common principle, um, one of these is this idea that there is a there is a power or there is the there is a might in the collective that allows the collective to pull back against the selfish interests of any individual gene. If we're looking inside our bodies or any individual self mm-hmm. or any, any selfish individual within yeah. societies and where, where we see cooperation thriving is where that is where it. Is in scenarios where those collectives do manage to work mm. together and they do manage to hold those selfish entities in check. And so, like, and um, th- another one of the key th- themes that emerges is that, in a way, a corollary of this is that um, whenever we see large scale cooperation, for example, our bodies are an example of large scale cooperation, mm-hmm. the societies we live in are examples of large scale cooperation. One of the Another kind of big theme that comes out of the book is that those examples of large-scale cooperation are always vulnerable to to being undermined by Mm. cooperation that's happening at lower levels or at more local scales. So if we think about inside our bodies, just for a moment, sometimes cells can join forces and cooperate with one another, but but this cooperation actually has a cost to the host organism. And they cooperate, for example, to outgrow the other cells and to hijack the host's um, mm. resource supplies and to evade the host host organism's defenses. And when this happens, it is a form of hyperlocal cooperation that exerts a toll on the host organism. And when it happens, we call the disease that results cancer. Mm. And so, cancer in some ways can be viewed as this kind of hyperlocal cooperation that exerts costs at a at a wider scale and. You know, in many ways we see, we can think of similar examples on a societal level with, you know, words like corruption and nepotism that don't immediately make us think of cooperation, but mm-hmm. that nevertheless are forms of hyper cooperation that nevertheless inflict wider societal costs.
0: Yeah, you, you just you just made my brain blow up inside of my head. <laughs> like you are a fantastic teacher. Now it's making sense. I'm like, okay, all right, now it makes sense. So let me let me ask this, and this will be a little test of myself to see if I'm I'm following along. So, like, uh, you know, me looking at, you know, the societal stuff, and and you talk a lot about this in the book, like, you know, the free rider problem or the uh the tragedy of the commons and things like that. Are there certain illnesses? Like you meant you mentioned cancer. Are there different illnesses or diseases where there's something happening in the bottom where in in the body where maybe something is being a free rider and not doing its job or is there a tragedy of the commons where something is taking more resources than it should and does that cause like something i might be familiar with like an uh an immunocompromised you know situation or anything like that like is that a good way of thinking of it or am i am i completely off no i think you
1: you are right and um so some of the ailments that I talk about that can result from this tension between, you know, cooperation for the greater good and, um, selfish entities pursuing their own short-term self-interested strategy. Some of some things that this can happen inside our bodies when, uh, these entities that we call selfish genetic elements try to over represent themselves in the sex cells. So in our bodies, most of the cells in your body don't have a chance to get into the next generation. So pretty much all the cells that make our bodies are called somatic cells. And they are in a way evolutionary dead ends. Their, Their main purpose is to provide this vessel that secures the sex cells, which are the cells in men their sperm cells and in women their egg cells that, that do have the potential to find their way into mm. the next generation and that do have the potential to propagate those genes into subsequent generations. Now it when when sex cells are generated is a it's a complicated procedure called meiosis, which is mm-hmm. essentially where the, the genome of the host organism, so your all all the genes that you have get shuffled up. And half of them get mm. pumped into every sex cell. So what that means is that any given gene in your body has a, has a 50% chance of finding itself in any given sex cell. And at that point it might be the lucky sperm cell or egg cell that yeah. eventually becomes fertilized and, you know, creates a new, um, a new being, a new, uh, an offspring. Now, what can happen, and you can see immediately that there would be an incentive for a selfish genetic element to try to make sure it appears in all of the sex cells, not just in half of the sex cells, because any selfish genetic element that does that will necessarily increase its own representation in, in future generations. And some of the ways that these selfish genetic elements can do this is by um, recognizing sex cells where they're not present so let's say let's say it's in sperm for example you have a sperm you have sperm cells that contain a certain selfish genetic element that recognizes other sperms other sperm cells and recognizes mm-hmm. the ones that don't contain the copy of itself mm-hmm. these selfish genetic elements can then sometimes assassinate or kill those those oh. those sperm cells that don't contain that that don't contain their copy, that don't contain Got the selfish genetic element, and this can result in a very obvious reduction in sperm count. Because if you have selfish oh. genetic elements that are killing all the sperm cells where they don't see themselves, that will result in a lowered, in a lowered sperm count or maybe a lowered egg count. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility. And there are several suggestions actually in the in the literature that perhaps some of the causes of Infertility in humans mm. I think the most recent figure that I ca- that I came at was one in seven couples will have difficulty in conceiving and it's reasonable to suspect that at least some of this infertility could be due to these selfish genetic elements that are pursuing their own short-term agenda yeah. but at the cost uh, the cost of say the abundance of the sperm cells in the male or the the abundance of the egg cells in in the female and so there are ways in which these selfish or the, these sort of competitive interactions that are occurring even inside our bodies can exert health costs or, or fertility costs
0: yeah um,
1: on the host organism
0: This this is so helpful i I wish we had this conversation soon. Now I feel like I can start reading a bunch more books because things are going over my head. But I think if I if I kind of use this analogy and then like kind of look at it that way, like that 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 that's awesome. And real quick question, like, is that because I've never read everybody talks about it, is that kind of the idea of I don't know if you've read it, but uh Dawkins the selfish gene?
2: Is that
1: I have I have read it. And to be honest, the selfish gene, I would say, um, well, it changed my life really. I mean, I remember when I studied natural sciences at university and at the time when I was admitted to university, I thought that what I was interested in was psychology because I was interested mm. in behavior. I wanted to understand more about, you know, what why animals and humans did the things they do. And it wasn't until I... Sat in the lecture um in a behavioral ecology lecture i mean i didn't even know what behavioral ecology was when i started university and i certainly didn't know that it was going to be something that i was going to you know spend my career doing but i remember sitting in a behavioral ecology lecture and you know being given this outline of this view of individual level selection and understanding but it's not about the good of the group or the good of the species that evolution really acts on the individual in fact evolution acts on the gene as you know and i remember reading the selfish gene as part of the reading for that course and it i don't know i just had a very sort of um it was it wasn't i know it sounds very cliche but it really was like a light went on It was like oh right i yeah. really i understand this now and i can see how this raises so many interesting questions, and um, yeah, so yes, I have read Selfish Gene. well, it's an well, amazing book. Yeah,
0: I yeah. think I think you've sold me on it because I've been like, oh, well, I'm not a huge like into biology and stuff because I've I've um I've read uh, Robert Sapolsky's work and uh, his newer book The Ave, was a little bit more on my level, but then I went back and read uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, and I was that was that was a little bit more difficult for me, but uh, I do like you know, reading this stuff, because it all kind of intertwines. Is my thing is I'm just like, like you were saying, I'm just like, why do people do the things they do? Like, I'm just fascinated with human behavior and irrationality and all that stuff. So, so from there and in the book, you, and you've, you've studied like animals and stuff and something I've always been curious about, you're, you're going to educate me all over the place today. Something else I'm curious about is, and I don't know if this is a dumb question, but there are no dumb questions what how does like studying like for example you talk about like birds and stuff in there right like i get like studying like like apes like kind of makes sense i'm like okay they're like in relation right but i'm like how how does me knowing what a bird does help me understand human behavior a little bit more does that make sense Or like when they do research on mice like there's a lot of like My I was just reading a book and they were talking about like taking out parts of a mouse's brain and, you know, checking, like, (laughs) you see how the hippocampus works and all that stuff. So I'm like, how much can we learn from it? How is it beneficial? So maybe you could break that down for me and anybody else who might have the same question.
1: Yeah, sure. And actually it's not a stupid question at all, because (laughs) I think it is really tempting when we're thinking about examples of behavior that we think of as being quintessentially human. And when we're looking, when we want to look for, you know, analogues of those behaviors in other species, it's so tempting to look to our closest living relatives on earth and, you know, we do expect to find that those behavioral similarities will be found in species like chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas and orangutans, but in fact. One of the big lessons I think from the field of behavioral ecology over the last 10 or 15 years has been that find the genetic similarity by which I mean, are, where do you sit on the tree of life? Are mm. you next, are you on the branch next to me or are you like somewhere miles, miles away from me on this massive tree of life? So find the genetic similarity is not always going to be a reliable cue for behavioral similarity. And quite often what we find is that we have lots and lots in common with species that we might never even have heard of. Mm. Like, for example, the species that I've worked on, I don't think are really um, household names, but things like pied babblers and yeah. um, blue blue street cleaner, cleaner rats and things like this. One of the main um, uh, heuristics we can use to think about where we're going to find behaviors that we that are similar in humans and non-human species is ecological similarity rather than defined genetic similarity. What's and the so difference what between I, those two? What things? I mean by that, what I mean by that is okay. rather rather than thinking about um, have we shared an evolutionary history for a long time with these species, like we have with the other grey tapes, mm-hmm. we can ask a qu- we can ask a different kind of question. And we can say, do these species or have they faced the same kinds mm. of social and other challenges that we face or that we would have faced ancestrally, and that would have given rise to the same kinds of, or given rise to selection pressures for the same kinds of behaviors. And so to give just one really simple example, teaching is a behavior that we think of as being quintessentially human. Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, the, this, this tendency to help Another individual to learn something, whether it occurs in formalized classroom settings or not, is something that we see in every single human culture on earth. And for a long time it was thought that teaching was a uniquely human thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we just wouldn't, we wouldn't see this in any other species. And researchers that were interested in looking for examples of teaching outside of humans tended to look in our closest living relatives. So the assumption was always that. If we're going to find a behavior like this, that seems to be so you know, unique to humans, if we're going to find anything like this going on in other species, the first place we should look for it should be in the chimpanzees and the bonobos and the, and the other great apes. And in fact, the first example of teaching that was found outside of a human, which was uh, conclusive enough to be published as a form of teaching, wasn't in an ape or a primate or even a mammal in fact, but it came from an ant. And this was a really stunning revelation that like, you know, this behavior that we thought was uniquely human. The first example of it in a non-human species was in an ant. And the second example was in a meerkat. And the third example was in a a pied babbler and, and actually conspicuously, even to this day, none of the examples have come from primates or from, really? from, from the other great apes. And so, I mean, we can talk a bit more about this if you want to, but this, it highlights actually that, um, when we, we, we might not always find the, the similar behaviors that we think we're going to find, um, that are similar to what humans do in apes and primates. And we might often find them in quite distantly related right. species, that nevertheless, similar kinds of ecological selection pressures
0: to us yeah so yeah i i am so happy i i feel like questions i've had for decades are being answered so i i appreciate this and like i think my only other main question about like researching animals so so what's it called Uh, a something babbler pied babbler
1: the pied babbler yes
0: pied babbler okay so here's my question and i don't know if it's purely ethical reasons but Why, for example, if I'm looking, if I'm trying to study behaviors, I'm like, okay, cool. The pie babbler has similar behaviors to a human, right? Why would I study the bird instead of studying humans? Like, what's the, what's the benefit? Like, like when it comes to like, you know, ethical reasons, like, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's stuff that really gets like places like PETA really mad and I'm vegetarian. So I like kind of get it, but you know, I, I think like, you know, some of the, what you talked about in in your book, it's like uh, just a pure observation so why wouldn't I just, if I'm a scientist or researcher, why wouldn't I just observe humans? What's the reason for
1: well, that? Well, I I think one obvious answer is that not, you know, not all the research we do has to be with a view to some kind of human understanding. You mm. know, some people might people might research make because they're interested in make or they might research babblers because they're interested in babblers. And, you know, there is, you know, so I think that's one sort of very, uh, glib answer in a way Mm. but i think and i think also that if the if if you accept the premise that you understanding social behavior in non-human species is done with a view to better understanding our own behavior and i'm not saying that accept that premise that let's go with it for now yeah well we have to we we can't understand what's special about ourselves and the social behavior that we do without looking at what other species are doing ah. and by, by having this comparative. Perspective where we do examine and interrogate the evolution of social behavior and the evolution of family life and the evolution of parental care across many different species, we can start to see which kinds of things have had a very, very long evolutionary history, which things do we share with other species? And then, you know, the real interesting question, I think for most people is, and where do we start to see the points of divergence and what is it that sets us apart from the, from the other social species on this Mm. planet? And I think for, I think for a lot of people, that is the thing that they are interested in, it's, it's what, why are we different? How did we get to be so different? And what, what do we, what do we share with these other species? Mm -hmm. But what is it that sets us apart?
0: Yeah. This, this has quickly become one of my favorite episodes. I feel like I've learned so much. Like this is fantastic. Okay. Okay. So, so here, here's, here's something that I'm thinking about. Like, so we understand, you know, what, what animals might have similar behaviors and things like that. Are there any, you know, fields of science where we can kind of reverse that to like help you know just issues with like the environment right because you hear about like a species going extinct and then you know it causes this chain reaction or whatever if for example if we if we understand you know the pied babbler and what it eats and then all of a sudden there's some kind of change understanding our own behavior could we then like understand how we can maybe turn an animal to do something else that might help the environment a little bit more does that make sense like can we can we go backwards with that? Like, for example, I think a good example is, uh, or maybe, uh, B.F. Skinner and his work with behaviorism, right? So, like, he, you know, he had this whole theory of behaviorism with humans, Then he, and he did it with pigeons, too. And then they were like, okay, well, maybe we can get pigeons to do this, right? So, what are your thoughts on that? So, so
1: um, just let me make sure that I understand the question. Is the question... Um by understanding social behavior in non-human species can we use that to help us tackle global problems so what do you mean by that like we should alter the behavior of the animals or we should alter our, our own behavior
0: i guess i'm asking like altering the behavior of animals for example mary roach has a new book coming out called fuzz and it's about like uh like different like it's called like subtitles like when nature breaks the law right and there's there's uh places where for example we've uh you know built cities communities right it's disrupted wildlife and there's there's this overlap where you know bears are getting into people's backyards or you know a wolf doing that right so if we found just for example i don't I don't know but like if a wolf had some kind of similar learning ability could we then use that information that we know about ourselves to try to get the the species in that area to survive and thrive a little bit better so we can coexist
1: so so that is this isn't directly relating to corporation per se but there are there are some really interesting studies on human wildlife conflict that are being done that are with that aid in mind, essentially, to where humans are living in very close contact with mm. wildlife, with wild species that are potentially dangerous or destructive in some way. For example, elephants mm. um, or um, predators that might eat the cattle or whatever, whatever farmer or something like that. There are so there are some studies which are now using these behaviorally informed methods to try to reduce that conflict. So Got it. one of the studies I've heard one of the studies I know about um gosh, I read about this ages ago. Sorry, I need to check it again. But um it was to, it was where people were living in very close contact with elephants and the elephants were destroying Fences, I think, I can't remember, but there was some conflict between the elephants and the residential human population nearby, and to stop the elephants coming in contact with where the human settlements were, they would play the sound of beehives at the uh, territory yeah. at the border of where So elephants don't like bees and hearing the sound of like lots of buzzing bees, they would, um, in principle, make them just go somewhere else. Um, there's mm-hmm. a much there's a much cooler study that I know of, which has actually been done by a friend of mine who works on large predator conservation. He's called mm-hmm. Neil Jordan, and he's um, he's based in Australia now. But he's done a lot of work on African wild dogs in the Okavango Delta. And one of the studies that he did, I think, was to do with reducing human-wildlife conflict. I think between lions and farmers but some predator i can't remember the predator but the but the way that they basically the problem was that these predators let's say it was lions they were eating they were killing and eating the cattle the farmer's cattle and the farmer wanted them to stop doing this but without having to kill the lion or something like that and the thing that um neil's idea and i'm pretty sure he did do this experiment and i can't remember if it worked i think it did was to paint eye spots on the rear end of the cattle. Basically ice spots uh, are, are used in na- ice spots are a kind of a thing, an evolutionary mechanism that nature has come up with again and again and again, lots in butterflies often actually, yeah. which which deter predators from attacking prey because predators are put off by the appearance of being observed or these seeing these eyes. And so Neil used these this insight to paint these eyes on the rear end of cows to deter predators from attacking the cows from behind and i'm pretty sure that it worked but i actually need to check with him how way he got to with that i
0: i need you to do me a favor when you talk to neil if you find out shoot me a message or an email because that that sounds really cool that's really interesting all uh, right yeah like I, I i love it like i am now i have like a bunch of books that have just been kind of over here and i'm like i want to kind of read these now now that i have a little tiny bit better understanding of, of some of this stuff Um, but yeah, so, so moving on to the humans you discuss in there. So, so a a few things that I'm just really, really, really interested in are topics of like, you know, altruism, right? You talk about that in a book and like why it exists and, you know, uh, reciprocity and all these things. Right. So, you know, uh, when we look at it, I think, you know, just, Intuitively we think like, you know, why, you know, why does altruism exist, right? And that's a question we've always had. Like, why would I help a stranger? Like, it makes sense, like on a evolutionary level, like to help our, our kids, like I have a son, I'm gonna protect it, but why would I help someone else's son or, you know, whatever? And there's a lot of talk about that. So can you, can you kind of break down like why, you know, in, in the book you discuss some theories around why we're altruistic, why do we help others even when it seems like there would be no benefit to it
1: yeah sure um i'm going to start by just um with a caveat which is that when an evolutionary biologist uh, sorry an evolutionary biologist asks the question why why would we be altruistic for example there are different kinds of explanation you can offer and it's important for me to explain this because i quite often get accused um, (laughs) of of taking the altruism out of altruism by showing or by explaining how apparently altruistic acts can be consistent with that individual's own long-term self-interest mm-hmm. because people quite often will misinterpret that as being, as, as, as me saying that, um, altruistic acts are motivated by self-interest or that people are in the ever nice when they can see that there's something in it for them and all altruistic behavior is calculated and psychologically self-serving and that's emphatically not what an evolution sorry that's emphatically not what an evolutionary approach is trying to do. So when we ask a why question, mm-hmm. we can offer different kinds of explanation. And broadly speaking, you can classify them into one of two different piles. So on approximate level, we can uh, we can talk about motives and wants and needs and even things like hormones and physiological um, mechanisms that might bring their behavior about. So mm-hmm. for example, if I was going to say, um, why do people have sex on approximate level, I could say, well, they, maybe they enjoy it, maybe they feel desire, maybe it, um there it, it increase it has some subjective reward value. Well you know there are lots of different proximate psychological reasons for why a person might or might not decide to have sex with somebody. But on an evolutionary level, if we say why does sex exist, why does this behavior exist? well, we re- we can immediately see that it has the potential to lead quite directly to reproductive success, which is the currency that evolution cares about, yeah, and so the very same the very same kinds of distinction can be made for thinking about why people help. So just as we wouldn't, you know, no one would ever argue that even though sex does increase reproductive success on average, no one would ever say that, The only reason people ever have sex is because they're trying to increase their reproductive success. That's clearly nonsense. You know, there are lots of proximate reasons why people do it, but that doesn't change the fact that the evolutionary function of sex is to increase reproductive success and understanding helping behavior is really similar so we can accept that helping behavior has some kind of evolutionary function and it has it in some way yields benefits to individuals that engage in altruistic behavior Mm -hmm. without also taking that, that extra step and implying that all of this behavior is done with that benefit in mind. Mm -hmm. So that's just one thing important to keep clear is that when we say why people do something, we have to be clear whether we're talking about, whether we're trying to explain something on a proximate psychological level, or whether we're really talking about evolutionary. Reasons that behavior exists.
0: Got it. Yeah, I think I think that might be where, yeah. And that'll that'll probably help me because I'll I'll give you an example of why I I find the topic of altruism super interesting. So quick story: 2012, I'm dying from drugs and alcohol. I get sober, right? So I I start going to 12 step meetings, and it's all about, you know, a lot of it's about helping others, being of service. they like, you stay sober by helping others, right? And, you know, there was a lot of talk about we do it without a motive and everything. And I'm just like, well, you know, you, we keep hearing that if I, help, if I help others, I stay sober. So isn't that a form of selfishness, right? It's helping me by helping you. And I'm not judging that. I'm not saying it's bad. And I just have a tendency to overthink things. You know what I mean? But maybe it's, it's because I'm not like separating it enough but I you know as soon as you mentioned like some people like freak out about it like I've noticed that people get kind of touchy around it too because it, nobody wants to you know hear about like, oh oh, we have some hidden motive behind it and stuff like I, I got really into books on self-deception like why we lie to ourselves you know because it's not going to okay. do us any favors to be like oh I'm only helping you to do this and maybe I'll not help you because I'm not you know what I mean so I, I get why people kind of put up that that little, that little defense, but you know, overall it's beneficial. That's why I just kind of shut up when I got sober, I was like, who cares? It helps. It's helping you. It's helping me. We're all, we're all benefiting from this. So I guess, I guess just like on a, you know, a uh, uh, human level, like, I guess the question is like, in your opinion, like, does it, does it, does it matter for the average person? Like, if you're not a scientist, is that, is this a question that someone should really dive into or they should say, Hey, helping people. Maybe it feels good. Maybe they'll, you know, maybe something will happen down the line. You know, does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So I think your story is really interesting because it highlights that actually sometimes, sometimes we are quite aware of the downstream benefits of the things that we do and we do them to get, to get those downstream benefits. So, you know, not to hammer the sex analogy, but just to go back to the sex analogy. So, you know, a lot of the time people are having sex Because they want to, because they because it feels good. Blah blah. Sometimes people have sex because they want to have a baby. Like sometimes the proximate motive and the ultimate function of the behavior really coincide, right? And that's kind of what you, um, what you were experiencing in some ways is that you know that there there could be maybe some downstream benefit to an engaging in helping behavior. You know, the, the kinds of evolutionary mechanisms that we know about that might render helping behavior beneficial to the individual that helps are things like um improving reputation that's a huge evolutionary mm-hmm. advantage to be gained from engaging in helping behavior that's not to say that every time people help they're doing it because they're thinking if i do this i'm gonna improve yeah. my status and everyone will you know everyone will think that i'm a great person but sometimes people do think, you know sometimes they do and so yeah I, I i wouldn't want to make any sweeping claims about You know, we, we never consider the evolutionary, you know, the downstream benefits of our actions, or we always consider them. I think it's really context specific. Mm. And I think sometimes, sometimes we do a good thing and we have what you might call an ulterior motive and you know, that's one thing. And sometimes we do a good thing and we help someone. Um, and that, you know, even I do this all the time, like you'll see something like, for example, um you will see a charity appear and it, you know, it will be something that really sort of pulls at your heartstrings and mm-hmm. you just feel so motivated to do what you can in that situation and to give what you can. And if, you know, you don't, you're not going to tell anyone about it. You're not, you know, you're just doing it because basically you care and you would like to help these individuals mm-hmm. that need help. But And so in that case, you know, there you're really not, there's really nothing on a psychological level going on about, I'm going to do this so that I can look good in front of somebody and do yeah. that. But that that doesn't change the evolutionary logic of why these kinds of behaviors have been under positive selection and why evolution has designed our brains in such a way as to make us feel good and fe- feel good when we help other people. Yeah. That's, a, that's a phenomenon called the warm glow of giving. And that yeah. is a real thing. You can measure that if you put people in a brain scanner and have them give to charity and do things like that. Lots of the areas that are associated with reward processing, mm-hmm. they're the same areas that are active if you're eating nice food or taking recreational drugs or having sex, like this reward-based sentence are active for a lot of people when they get the chance to help other people and that we find it rewarding. We'd like to help other people, Mm -hmm. but evolution has designed our brains in a way to make us do something that is in our own long-term self-interest, just as it's designed our brains to give us, to make us feel hungry, which is the cue from our brain that the body needs some fuel. Now, please put something in there. This is a designed um, experience a psychological experience that, that evolution has brought about so that we do eat and we are motivated to eat. And in some ways, helping behavior isn't really that different. And, um, I think that there is a really huge scope for confusion when we're explaining these things to the public, because I think it's really easy for people to come away from hearing these, this kind of, you know, people describing these results about helping behavior and thinking oh, well, you're just saying that everyone only does things because they're self-interested in calculating. And I'm not, I'm not like that. Therefore, I yeah, don't believe any yeah. of this. They, and they that's feel really like not, like not what chusal. we're saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it's really interesting because uh, I, I haven't uh, published the episode yet, but I spoke with uh, David Buss, right? And I, I asked him because I've noticed a lot of women around my age, uh, you know, even a lot of guy friends I have, like they're not as interested in having kids, right? So I was asking him, I'm like, how does evolution explain this? Right. Because so many things are about, you know, you know, you have sex, you produce offspring. So if people are not having kids, then why are they doing it? But like, you know, we evolved because our our genes had a certain result in mind. So it feels good. But now we're just kind of acting on the surface level, good feeling. And so when it comes to altruism, that's kind of what, you know, I realized because I, you know, uh, originally I started out just reading and learning about psychology and mental health and stuff like that. And one of my problems, like you were talking about ulterior motives, like one of the reasons I was miserable is because all my relationships were transactional, right? I'm doing this for you. What are you going to do for me? That 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 that. that. And when I, I started working on myself and realizing like, Hey, what if he just did it just to do it, I'm still get that good benefit. And if something else comes from it, that's just a little icing. On the mm-hmm. cake, right, so I evolved to feel good, helping no matter what, like you were mentioning, like with charity life, so even if I don't tell anybody, even if I don't get the 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 social reputation benefits, I still get a benefit because I evolved for that way, but I evolved that way because it was beneficial for cooperation, which helped our species survive, but I just don't got to pay attention to that is that kind of is that kind of am I on the right page? do you think
1: yes, a problem I wouldn't say that um. I think that evolution really acts at the individual level, and what we Mm. know about helping behavior. For example, if we look at, um, there's been lots of studies in hunter gatherer societies and even contemporary foraging societies, which show that, you know, when people catch a big prey item and they bring Mm. it back to camp, the most generous hunters, the ones that share that what they catch with other people, stand to gain in really, you know, quite material ways in terms mm. of status, in terms of access yeah. to good relationships, in terms of what you might call social capital. Like they, they, they occupy more central network positions. They're more likely to be helped themselves if they ever need help. If they're sick and they can't hunt or something like this, they're more likely to receive help from other people. And I think that, that, that isn't to say that when, uh, when people are giving away their their catch that they're doing it with all these downstream benefits in mind they might feel really good about doing it they might mm-hmm. feel it's really happy that you know i've caught this thing and now i can help everybody and that's as far as the you know the psychological motive goes it could yeah. be for a lot of people but that but that doesn't change the fact that when you actually really measure the downstream consequences in a quantitative way which lots of anthropologists have done in lots of different societies, there are downstream benefits to being seen to be generous. And so yeah. it's this kind, yes, but it's that tension in a way, or that distinction between why does the behavior exist? What's the evolutionary function it serves and what prompts us to do it in the moment, what motivates it, yeah. what's the psychology, what's the cognition. Um, and they can often be quite separate answers.
0: Yeah. So yeah, and that 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 brings up the question I've been just—it's been in my brain all morning long—and I'm gonna try to condense it. But and this might be a complex answer, so if it is, to say Chris, that's complex. We'll do a part two. Okay, so we have the cooperation, right? Like I help you, and there's reciprocity because the idea is I help you, you help me, we work together. Right, and then there's the free rider problem, right? Where some people they don't pull their weight, right? And part of this issue, you know, in a cooperative society, is that guy over there isn't doing his weight. That could bring on a certain social, you know, issues, right? Like, hey, we don't want that guy in our group because he never does anything. So here's the question, or I'm curious if you have a theory on this because this is what I think about a lot. Like, how do we explain? a lack of reciprocity, right? Like the only theory I have, like I do something for somebody, they don't return the favor. I get my, you know, in my dopamine or whatever, I'm fine, right? But I'm still curious about it. And the the the, the theory I have is that part of it has to do with, uh, you know, relative status or power, right? So for example, if I, okay, if I go to, uh, like, a, a Malcolm Gladwell or some insanely huge author, right, and I, like, give him something or I give him, like, a good book review or positive promotion or whatever, he never gets back to me, right? So, does, you see what I mean? So, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts, like, do, when it comes to reciprocity, do power and status kind of get involved with that? You know what I mean?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's a complex question, but I <laughs> I, I, I think um t- to answer your question of why, any, why we see free riding, I think that there is or in that there's the way that these kinds of social dilemmas, as we call them, are structured is such that individuals can gain a short-term temporary benefit sometimes from cheating or from defecting or from Mm -hmm. exploiting a partner. And for many different reasons, and I really think it's, I don't think there's like a single, uh, sort of silver bullet answer to say like, this is why people defect or this is why animals defect. It can be even within the same individual, they, they might cheat sometimes and they might, they might cooperate at other times. So, um. And it can be state dependent, it can be dependent on, you know, what are your mm. needs right now? Do you need a short? Do you, you know, can you afford to cooperate in the here and now, or can you not afford to? Is it what what's the context? What's everybody else doing? How likely is it that you're gonna, you know, that anyone's gonna know that you've defected, or could you maybe get away with it? Um, what how how accurate is your perception of that risk? There's so many things that would be going on in explaining variation within individuals and between individuals in whether they cooperate or don't cooperate. And I really don't think it's something which you can just sort of saying with like, what a sense of like, this is why people cheat. Like, it's really not that simple. Yeah. Um, and like even said, I just give you a couple of examples. Like there have been some studies which have shown, for example, that, um, that, that a phenomenon called moral licensing. Mm. Um, I, I'm not involved in this work, but, um, The idea here is that sometimes people will do a good thing. Like, like this, I get this, you know, my parents who are my stepdad, sorry, my dad and my stepmother are a bit like this, they'll, they'll go on and on about how much they will recycle, but then they will not think anything of taking like five or six flights in a year because they feel like, okay, I've done it. I've cooperated in this thing. I've done, I've done, I've done my bit here. That means I don't, that means I can, I can not do this thing and I can maintain my, my self-image um yeah. as a moral you know as a morally upstanding citizen and as and i can you know i can i can hold my head up high and say i'm doing the right thing even i don't have to always do the right thing and i don't it's not on me to do it in every situation so sometimes you can find these kinds of moral licensing effects where people do a good thing in one domain and then they feel licensed and maybe not do you know quite as much good in another domain
2: mm-hmm.
1: um Sometimes you get cases which in the evolutionary literature are called, are called phenotypic free riding or phenotypic defectors. And they are individuals who in in our evolutionary models, they just don't have enough resource to be able to cooperate. They no. are, you know, so, and, and that, you know, you can see, you could imagine how in some cases cooperating could be too costly for some individuals. And maybe they, at that moment, or. Or for some individuals throughout their lifespan, and I'm not only talking about humanity; they could just not afford to cooperate, and so there can be state dependencies as well. And um, I think we see lots of evidence of that in, you know, in species, not just our own species, but in other species as well. Mm. So I think I think there are there are multiple reasons why individuals might defect, and in human social social proof or social norms are another massive factor like um i always like you know i don't know if you've been to a music festival or anything oh, like yeah. that i mean like you know in, in normal life i'm a person who would not throw rubbish on the floor like i would i will keep it in my pocket i'll often um, yeah. Walk, i'm yeah i'm going walking around because i've got my children's here i've got all this like wrappers and everything in my pockets like they're always full of crap basically but it put me in a music festival where everyone else is putting their rubbish on the floor. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also put my rubbish on the floor because that is kind of everyone is doing it. And so, yeah. it, it, you know, even the same person who can have a really strong view on something in a certain setting will completely do the, that thing that they, they think is morally, you know, dubious yeah. in a different setting where everybody else is doing it. And so I think there are multiple reasons yeah, why people yeah. defect
0: yeah crowd psychology too and that loss of uh you know uh where where you're just you know you're lost in the crowd and you know you you don't you know there's not all that attention on you but last last question last question because it'll help me sleep at night too there's another question i've had that i think you might be able to answer so i'll give an example like for example like just uh i remember when i first started my youtube base i worked like two three four times as hard right like some people release like one video a week and they're millionaires or whatever. I was doing five, six, seven, right? But like, if you brought in that context, like a lot of people listening, right? Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe a professor, they're working 10 times as hard as another professor, but that professor is getting the benefits, right? They're getting the attention, they're getting the rewards, they're getting, you know, whatever, or, you know, you're at a company, you're working 10 times harder than the next guy, but he gets the promotion, he gets the raise. So question. Do you think some of that anger, that, that upsetness comes from our perceiving them as a free rider? Like they're not working as hard, but they're getting all the benefits. Like that's kind of what I've been wondering for years now. And I'm like, Hey, you talk a lot about free riders. So what do you, what are your <laughs> thoughts on that?
1: I'm not sure that I would interpret as free riding, but I think it taps into our obsession with fairness. And- mm. We, we are the only species on this planet that has such an acute sense of fairness and what, and it's, um, by which I mean, if I'm, if I'm working on this task and you're doing the same thing as me and I get, I get a payoff of X and you get a payoff of 10 X. We really hate that. And that, and actually funnily enough. There's not that much evidence in other species, even though people have spent a long time looking for it, that other species care at all. And it probably has to do with the fact that the computation involved to be able to not, not not only keep track of what you're getting for doing something, but to keep track of what he's getting for doing the same thing. And then to compare, oh, hang on, you've got more than me. That is quite taxing for working memory. So working memory is a bit like, if you think about the apps you have on your phone or the windows you have open on your computer, Yeah. working memory is your ability to have multiple ones of those open at the same time. And also maybe even to have them interact Mm. with each other and performing fairness computations where you have to hold in your mind, what did I do and what did I get? What did you do and what did you get? And how did what you get compared to what I got? That is computationally quite demanding, even though for us, it feels very, very easy to do it. Yeah. But other species don't have the computational firepower that we have essentially to be able to perform those kinds of comparisons. And that sensitivity to fairness is extremely pronounced in our own species. And, um, there are a number of really lovely experiments involving quite young children. So mm. you know, four, four or five years old where. You get this is where that's been done by my friend and um, colleague Katie McAuliffe, and I would recommend you to either have her on your show, or if the listeners want to look her up, she does really interesting work. Yeah. Um, but basically, some of the experiments she does involve giving kids kids play a game with an apparatus, and they're playing against another child, and the experimenter will say, "Okay, here's the deal: you're going to get one, you get one sweet, but the other kid gets four sweet." Yeah. Do you accept do you accept the deal or not accept it? Now if they accept it, obviously they get one and the other kid gets four. But if they reject it, then the sweets will tip into a central bucket in the middle and no one gets anything. Mm. And what Katie has shown like pretty consistently is that from a really, really young age, children would rather get nothing at all than let the other kid get more yeah. than them. They would willing. They will incur a cost. Yeah, they will sacrifice one sweet to stop the other kid getting is, more than them.
0: Is that like a version of what's it called? Like the dictator game that they that they do to check out like cooperation? Is it kind of like that?
1: It, it, it's not. Yeah, it's more. It's a very so classic terms they would call it an inequity aversion task. It's basically measuring the willingness to mm.
2: uh,
1: how willing are you to forego a reward? Yeah, just to prevent someone else getting more than you and we know that humans care a lot about that and we care about it from a pretty young age and the studies that have been done in non-human species um have yielded much more mixed results and i don't really think we're at a point yet where there's a consensus in the field as to whether this this proclivity for fairness this willingness to sacrifice your own payoffs to make an outcome fair. Yeah. I don't think we know yet whether whether non-humans really do that or not. There's a number of difficulties in interpreting the experimental results that are out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And oh man, I'm I'm so sad that I gotta let you go. But for anybody interested, something I, I was just thinking of Jonathan Haidt's work. He talks about uh liberals having a, a stronger idea of fairness than conservatives. And that kind of made sense for me, you know, whatever. So if anybody wants to check out Jonathan Haidt's work. But yeah, I I I wish, I wish I was exaggerating. This has been one of my favorite episodes. Don't tell anybody else, but <laughs> yeah, I, we might have to do this again sometime, but yeah. So the social instinct, it's been out in the UK. I don't know right now is, is it out in the United States? Just where On can Tuesday. people- Tuesday, Tuesday
1: the 31st. The 31st of August are available wherever books are sold.
0: Yeah, and it comes in audio format. I got the audio version, so absolutely. And where can people find you to keep up to date with projects you're working on when you decide to write another book about some of the other questions I have and all that kind of stuff? Where's the best I'm place? I'm never
1: there- writing another book. Um, <laughs> okay, I, not yet. Anyway. Um, I am on Twitter at Nicola Rehani, and my my lab website is called the Social Evolution and Behavior Lab. So you can find you can find that if you just Google the Social Evolution and Behavior Lab, it should pop up.
0: Beautiful, and I will link all that down in the description below. But thank you so much. I am so glad we were able to do this, and yeah, we will definitely be talking again soon.
1: Thanks, Grace. Nice to chat.
0: All right, everybody, that was my conversation with the wonderful Nicola Rahini. and yeah, I hope I hope all of you learned as much from this conversation as I did. Like I said, like I am like a psychology guy. I am a human behavior guy. All right, Uh, right below that I guess is like, uh, a little biology. I'm really into like neuroscience, but anyways, it's not like my thing. It, it confuses me. I don't understand. I think it's just because whenever I hear it, I'm like, "What's the point?" So I'm so grateful that she helped break it down and use those professor skills to educate me on what we can learn and how that that all kind of works. But yeah, the book is absolutely phenomenal. Everybody has been talking about it. And I've just heard uh, others say nothing but good things about it as well. And she's just such an awesome person. And and yeah, I appreciate that she gave me some other people to look into and check out and see what they're doing. So, so yeah, make sure you head down to the description below. Make sure you are following Nicola over on uh, Twitter. Grab a copy of The Social Instinct. Both of those are linked down in the description below. And while you're down there, Make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. All right. And if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast so you don't miss any new episodes. I do a ton of episodes because I read an insane amount of books. I'm at like 270 for the year, I think. I'm on Goodreads too, by the way. So if you want to hunt me down over on Goodreads. Uh, but yeah, I think I'm at like 270 books. My goal for the year was 250. So we'll see where I end up at the end of the year. Um, But yeah, if you're uh, following me on social media too, I I keep you up to date on what books I'm reading and all that. But yeah, make sure uh, you're following the podcast, share it if you think people might find this episode or any other episodes interesting. And what would really help out too is if you took two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review, all that stuff is very, very helpful with the algorithms and all that. All right, but other than that, if you wanna support my reading habit or support the podcast in any any other way, uh, down below uh, you can head over to therewiredsoul.com where I've written uh, some books on mental health, addiction recovery, stuff like that. You can also become a patron and there is also an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online therapy. All right. Mental health is a huge part of my life. And I know that this past year, geez, almost two years in this pandemic, a lot of people have been struggling with anxiety, depression, all sorts of stuff. Or it might just be time for you to, you know, go get help with your mental health. And BetterHelp Online Therapy is a service that I've personally used. You work with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home, and it's awesome. So if you want to check that out, there's an affiliate link down below. But yeah. Another big thanks to Nicola for coming on to talk about The Social Instinct. Make sure you grab a copy. And a huge, huge thank you to all of you for tuning in. And tomorrow I have a brand new episode with Will Storr about his brand new book. So yeah, make sure you don't miss it because that is another very good conversation. All right, so have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.